beast from the sea and, and the beast from the earth. And you go all the way to chapter 16, and then it begins to explain the bowl judgments. So um, like we've looked every time when we go through the book of Revelation, uh, it started with the seven seals that led into the seven trumpets that led in, leads into the seven bowl judgments. And so at this point in chapter 11, we're at the, almost the end of the tribulation period, that seven-year period of time where God is uh, working and moving in the nation of Israel. And so the first three and a half years in the uh, three and a half years of the uh, tribulation period, the Antichrist has a relationship with Israel. He's made peace with them. And then the halfway point, when the book of Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation, he sets up himself as the object of worship in the temple. And so the second three and a half year period, you have the two witnesses that are preaching. In chapter 12, you'll see that many Jewish people that are saved flee to the desert to be protected. But where we are tonight is these two witnesses in verses 1 through 6, if you have those notes with you, have been preaching. And God has been protecting them. And all of the world is seeing what they can do. Oh, thank you. <coughs> And so they have prophesied and they have spoken. And we look there in verses 4 through 6 about how the Holy Spirit is the power behind why they're able to do what they can do. But in verse 7, things begin to change. And so if you're taking notes tonight in your uh, handout, and if you would like all of these notes, we can get those to you. We're keeping those. And don't worry, I'm not going to publish a book. David Jeremiah's got one out. Read it, okay? And so, but I want to show you about the wicked rejoicing. The wicked rejoicing. And so pray with me, and we'll start. Father, tonight we pray that you would do what only you can do through the power of your Spirit, revealing to us the truth of your Word. Father, we believe that your Word is power. Lord, that your Spirit can take it and change hearts and lives. Father, we trust that your Word can not return void, that it will accomplish its purposes. So, Father, tonight we pray for teachable hearts and spirits. We pray for minds that listen and want to learn. Lord, help us to love you more and to celebrate you more. Lord, to just take our relationship with you serious as the great days draw near. And so, Father, I thank you and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so look here at verses 7 through 10 with me, and then we'll go through them verse by verse. When they finished their testimony, that is the time period that God had given them to preach, the beast that extends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwelt on the earth. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to flip back into those verses, in verses uh, Four through six, it talks about the fact that they have the power to shut up heaven, that they could make it not rain. It says that they had the power to turn water to blood and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desired. And so they were preaching judgment and repentance and the signs and wonders were being displayed and, and nothing could harm them. But now that time has ended. And look here in these words when they finished and if you look there in the notes i have tried to give you as much information as i can it is translated for a verb that looks to a future completion it's a subjunctive aorist active it is a verb that is going to happen in the future and so it's saying that when god has this future plan for them when that future plan is finally accomplished only then can anything be done to them? We see here their testimony, their witness. 
We know that that word we looked at last time is where we get our word martyr from. Someone who dies for their faith. Someone who is willing to proclaim the message of God to a lost and dying world. And so when they finished their testimony, the beast, which we know if we study this, there are a couple possibilities. Some people would say the beast is Satan. But yet in the book of Revelation, Satan is usually referred to as the dragon. And so if you look in chapters 13, which we're going to look at those in a couple weeks, you will see the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, and we'll talk about all of that. But John MacArthur says it like this. The beast, it is a word for an animal that preys on others. John MacArthur, but the beast who is the Antichrist comes out of the pit, his home, the origin of his passion and character is hell. He is demon-possessed. He is Satan in power. He is a man. He is human, but he is empowered by the pit, the abyss, hell itself. And so it is not teaching us that he has not been at work. It is just reminding us that where his power lies, how he is able to do these magnificent works, how he is able to convince people that he is to be worshipped, that his power and authority comes from the very pits of hell. If you remember when Jesus would drive out demons, they would say, do not send us back to the abyss, the bottomless pit. Um, it can be translated a bottomless pit, if you look there, and almost always has an evil connotation. If you remember in chapter 9, if you were here with us, in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, it said, Then the fifth angel sounded, and a star, I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and it's actually translated shaft of the abyss. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. So God has said, you have a mission to accomplish. You have this much time to accomplish it. When that time is up, that divine protection is gone. The Antichrist kills the two witnesses. All right? Uh, it's just it's this explanation. And we talked last week that when God has a purpose and a plan for your life, you are going to be able to accomplish it with the power and protection and authority that God gives you. Whatever that task is. And look what it says there. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. So it's talking about Jerusalem. And this is important because if you have read through the Bible, uh, you know that when um, Saul was killed uh, and they uh, hung his body up, that they snuck in, right? Took the bodies down because it was dishonorable. It was uh, disrespectful to let a body not be buried. The Old Testament talks about when someone dies on a tree, they are accursed. That's why they took Jesus down to bury him. But what happens here is they are wanting to put on display the fact that the Antichrist, that this, this evil that is, it is empowered by Satan, wins. They want the world to see. But look at how Egypt and Sodom are brought into this. Jerusalem is this beautiful city that we know in the Old Testament, right? It's the city of God. It's God's promises and, and all the things that God did. But in this reference, it has become so wicked. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this would be at the time of the Gentiles that we've looked at. But it's referencing two individual, one city and one nation to call our attention back to the Old Testament. When you think of Sodom and you think of... And the wickedness, right? That God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven to destroy it. I listened to a liberal preacher recently say that it was because they were not hospitable. They weren't, they weren't kind to travelers that God destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want you to tell that is not a faithful interpretation of that chapter, okay? But that's what you think of. You think of wickedness and the judgment of God. When you think of Egypt, you think of Moses and the plagues, the wickedness of Egypt. Think about killing the sons and Moses' 
family hiding him in a basket. Think about what they went through when they would not let God's people go and the judgments that fell, the plagues that we read about in the book of Exodus. So he's trying to call our attention to the fact that wickedness has abounded so much that the city is so evil that the world has embraced sin so much, which we understand because why? The Bible says during this time, the Holy Spirit is not going to be restraining evil. It's going to be a time when whatever the wickedness of the heart desires can be embraced. It can be followed. And, and so we see this, this the Lord is, is telling us this through John, but it also calls us back that in the middle of the brokenness, the middle of the sin, the middle of the judgment, the middle of all this mess to remind us about our Lord, to remind us where he was crucified. Now, there's a lot of differences of opinion for why this is here, but I'll give you my opinion. You can disagree with it if you like. Because truly, the crucifixion of Jesus changes everything. Right in the most brokenness of situations, in the most hopelessness of people. The cross changes everything. One of my favorite songs, and I will not sing it for your ears' satisfaction, is the old rugged cross. Right? We have uh, cross symbols everywhere. Not because of the cross itself, but because of what he what, did for us. The fact that he took our sin and our shame and our punishment. He willingly took that punishment for us. And so he's he is calling them to the wickedness, but also reminding them of what the Lord has done. You look at verse nine there and it says "Then those from the people's tribes, tongues and nations will see their bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. I think this is interesting because when Paul is writing or John is writing the book of Revelation and whether you believe it was 8085 or 8095, the idea of you being able to watch something in one place from all over the world would have been unheard of. But now you have a television. If you're like me, you don't have direct TV, you have the internet. You can watch what's going on in Ukraine or Japan or China or anywhere in the world. You have Google Maps. You can see things from all over the world. But yet it says here that for these three and a half days, the bodies will be on display. The world will see. But don't miss this. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Make merry and send gifts to one another. There is going to be a party, a celebration of unrighteous people because all of the problems that these individuals caused is gone. I titled this section, The Wicked Rejoice, and I want to make this statement. The Bible teaches us that there is a time for capital punishment. Now, you might not like that, but it's true. The Bible teaches us there's a time for self-defense. The Bible teaches there are times to go to war. It's in there. There are times and seasons. But what separates the righteous from the unrighteous is God's people should never rejoice over the destruction of the wicked or the destruction of the righteous. What is it that God says? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I think this is important because it shows the heart that separates us from them children of God to those who are evil. As a child of God, do we know that these things have to happen from time to time? Yes. But we never celebrate. We never celebrate when bad things happen to our enemies. We, we don't seek vengeance on our own. I think that is why you are watching the wickedness in our country celebrate a culture of death. Wickedness promotes the murder of old people when they seem to have no value for society. Wickedness celebrates and promotes the murder of the unborn in the womb. It will not change. It will just be on display. Remember this, that God is the creator. He is the giver of life. And it's something that should be celebrated. It's something that we should rejoice over. But look at that last verse. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice 
over them. Make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, I think it's interesting because some commentators say it is the physical torment that they didn't like. It's the plagues, it's the, it's the famines, it's all of that. Other commentators says, no, it was the constant reminder of judgment. Right? Your wickedness, you're sinful, and God is going to judge you. If you've ever been in that situation, the Bible tells us, right, that Jesus is either the cornerstone or the stumbling block. So you can just imagine these two men preaching that you're wicked, you need to repent, judgment's coming. They can't do anything to stop them. They can't stop watching them. It is the pinnacle of society because here it is. And yet it's finally over. It's finally done. This problem's eliminated. And things they believe can get better. And so we see this picture here of what happens. Questions, thoughts? So the church has been taken out of I believe the church is raptured at the beginning of the tribulation period. The majority yes. of the population is heathen. Well, other than the Jewish people, if you believe that the 144,000 evangelists were Jewish, if you believe that the nation of Israel, like Romans 11 talks about, that are going to return after being rebellious. So, yes, I believe the church has been gone for six and a half years. But then with the, uh, between the dead bodies on display, that would be a shift from Judaism because that would be, politically, that would be an unclean thing to have. It would be. It would even to be to be in, in proximity to a dead body. But most of your Jews at this point are, if you're in the second half, are like in verse chapter twelve, they have fled to the desert, or some of them are not yet saved, which we're going to look at here in just a moment. Yes, but ceremonial unclean for sure. Other questions? All right. Well, this is where it gets good. I titled this one, The Righteous Rejoice, or you can title it, The Lord Provides, whatever makes you happy. But in verse 11, it says, now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Now, I heard another preacher say this, so I'm going to say it. All right. Can you imagine if you're the newscaster standing by the body? They're dead. They're gone. There's a party. Jerusalem's celebrating. The world's celebrating. Everything is like it should be. And then you see the body start to move. It's like, hey, what's going on? He's getting up. He's getting up. He's up! <laughs> Can you imagine what that would be like? Like I said, I didn't come up out of my own. I listened to someone else say it. But the Bible just says, after three days, the breath of God came back up in them, and they arose. It's like, that's a big deal. You would think that would require a little more explanation or a little more fanfare, but it just says, no. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of God, of life from God, entered them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw him. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Don't miss that. Because a few chapters ago, we saw that no one else believed. But yet here it says, They rejoiced and gave glory. In verse 14, it says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. That word for fear there, after they arose, is a combination of two words that means extreme terror. It's one of the strongest words you can find in the language to, to express something. A fear and terror and fright. It's, it's something that, that would blow our minds. And so these wicked people's party is over. They have rejoiced in the wickedness of the Antichrist. They have rejoiced in the power of Satan. But they realize that even though these men were dead, 
that God has brought life back into them. Now, what we see here in verse 12 is, and then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, there is a difference in beliefs in commentators. Does everyone here come up here? Or is it just those two people who can hear it? I don't believe there's any way to tell, uh, ultimately. But anyway, these two individuals heard come up here. And we see this in other places in the New Testament. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the ascension of our Lord back to heaven. It says, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go. We see a very similar picture to this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So we see this pattern again. Some scholars and people will say, well, this would have been the perfect opportunity to be preaching. These people had seen a miracle. They had seen the dead come back to life. <laughs> And you'll hear that from sometimes people in different churches that what we just need is more miracles. If we had more miracles, more people believe. And if we had more signs and wonders, people would believe. But if you remember what Jesus taught in the book of Luke chapter 16, there was a rich man and Lazarus. One died and went into Abraham's bosom. One died and went into punishment. And the man in punishment starts to say, about my brothers and dip your finger in some water and put it on my tongue. And listen to what he says in verse 27. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my house. I send him back from the dead. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. We see two things. There is a place of reward for those that love God. And there is a place of punishment for those that don't. And so regardless of what, uh, regardless of what these television preachers are talking about, there is no hell, there is no place of punishment. The Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that there is a place where sin must be punished for all eternity for those who do not believe. But it goes on and says in verse 29, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. It's talking about the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the, the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. And I want you to miss this. What it's teaching us is the power of God's word. God's word is the authority. Does God do miracles? Absolutely. Can God work and move however he wants? Absolutely. But friend, it is the word of God and the spirit of God that changes lives. It's the word of God and the spirit of God using me to live a life that is changed by the power of God to witness to other people. You say, well, if a dead person rose from the cemetery and began to preach, that is what revival would look like. It's not what Jesus said. Because it's not about that. It's about what the Holy Spirit is doing in someone's heart. 
It's about the power of God's word. That's why Sunday night when we were looking at the scriptures about what the Bible is and, and what it represents, right? That I will hide your word into my heart so that I might not sin against God. Until this church or any church makes the study and memorization of God's word its top priority, you can expect things to stay the same. Unless this church, you, I, our children's programs, our youth programs, all that we do elevates the word of God, what it teaches, and that it can change lives, nothing happens. That is why every denomination that begins to doubt the word of God, whether it's the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, when you begin to see them say things like, well, it doesn't really matter what we believe about Genesis. Or does it really matter what we believe about hell? Or does it really matter what we, what they have done is they have taken the word of God that can keep them from sin, not perfection. It doesn't teach that. And they've removed it. They've taken the bullet out of the gun. They've dulled the sword because God's word is the foundation. And if you ever hear me or a Sunday school teacher, or anyone ever teach something negative about this book, that it should be doubted, that it should be questioned, that it should be untrustworthy. Look up here. They are not speaking for the Lord. And that's what you have to believe. And that's what we see here from Jesus' teaching is if they won't hear the Old Testament, Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, they won't hear the prophets, all the things from Jeremiah and Isaiah, the, the minor prophets. If they won't believe the word of God, there's no hope. Right? Because who became flesh? If you read John chapter 1, verse 1, most of you can quote it by memory. You're just amazing. But I'm going to read it because I'm not amazing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so we know, if you want to flip over to John, the book of John chapter <coughs> 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why is the word of God powerful? Because it's all about him. He is the word. It's all about him. He is the power. He is the authority. It's not my opinions. It's not my feelings. It's not what your heart tells you. It is the authority of God's word. So what can I do as a parent? What can you do as a grandparent? One, you can teach your children the word of God. You say, Jake, I'm not a good teacher. Then bring them to some place that is teaching. And whatever they teach them, you talk about it. You ought to be talking to your kids and grandkids about what they learned in Sunday school. You say, I don't bring my kids and grandkids to Sunday school. Well, stop being dumb. Don't miss an opportunity. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. But I did it. <laughs> Don't miss an opportunity to study the Word of God. I'm going to pay for that one later. I'm going to pay for that one later. Don't miss an opportunity to hear the Word of God and to be taught the Word of God. Adults, you say, well, Jake, I, I know it. No, you need it. You need to talk to other people about what the Scripture means to them and how it has changed their life and, and what it's done for them. And, and to, to hear it taught and explained and as iron sharpens iron. You say, well, uh, Jake, I can do Sunday school. I can do Sunday morning. I, 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 I've got that. Well, you know what? We even do something else for you. We even have Sunday night church. You say, but Jake, I'm tired. Listen, you can sleep here just like you can sleep in your recliner. You won't be the first person that slept through a sermon on Sunday night. I can promise you that. I remember sleeping through a few of my day, too. It was Sunday nights before I was preaching. But it's a chance to hear the word of God. It's an opportunity to sing and to worship God. It's an opportunity for the Word of God to impact you. We have Wednesday nights. We have all of these things. Not because I love for you to come listen to me. Trust me, I get nervous enough having to stand in front of you. 
But it's because the Word of God, that's the key. The Word of God changes things. And so, parents, get your kids where the Word of God's being taught. Families, talk about the Word of God together. What it means to you. What it says. I know life's busy. There are days that we don't sit around and have a 48-minute Bible study. But as I take my kid to school, we're talking about the Word of God. We're talking about what they're studying in their nightly Bible studies. My second daughter has a, a love for reading. She loves it. She loves to read. She loves to read. She loves to read. And so she loves to talk about what she has read. Half of my kids can't read, okay? So we're talking about what the Word of God says. The, the picture Bibles that we, they have, we we're talking about that. Why? Because it changes lives. Thoughts, questions, how has God's Word impacted you? What you're talking about, whether you have the talent to teach or not, is what God expressed to the Israelites Posted on the doorpost. Mm -hmm. As you're walking, you're talking about it. Absolutely. That's exactly what the Israelites were, were commanded to do with their children. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as far as the dead rising, you know, it's it's all right. It's a stony heart that's not going to respond mm -hmm. to that. I mean, you, you know, back to the soils of the mm -hmm. of the sower. Yep. If the soil's not prepared to take that message, it's can either bounce off of it or yeah. wither away. Absolutely. You were talking about parents who uh, didn't know how to teach or <laughs> wasn't know how to teach. Sometimes just reading the word mm -hmm. is enough. Uh, God gives everybody the innate ability to discern it, um, or the child or, or adult. So if they hear the word, eventually that is going to soak in and they're going to, they're going to learn. They're going to walk. We, it, it, how can I say this in a way that's not going to come back and bite me? <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to say it. Thank you, Dave. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we have blamed everyone for children leaving the church except the people that probably should be blamed. So. Just saying that. Can kids leave the church? They're taught, absolutely. Right? You say, but train a child in the way that they should go when they are old, they are sure not. Shall not depart. That is a proverb. It's not a promise. It's a proverb. It's an individual choice everyone has to make. But yet, the Bible tells us that God honors obedience and faithfulness. You say, well, I drag my kids to church on Sunday morning. They sit and listen to you. That's enough. Not if the whole way home you're screaming and cussing at your wife, talking about the sermon was too long, the sermon was too short, that how much you cheated your business part. They have to see it lived out in your life. None of us are perfect. My oldest one's favorite saying is, Dad, at least you're the same jerk to everybody. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Oh, my finest poem. But it is it lived at home. Right? That's the great problem with politicians, regardless of the side that you vote for. They will tell you whatever they want you to know that they that you agree with, and then they do whatever they want. We're against spending, we're against spending, we're against spending until they have a checkbook. And they spend it, they spend it, they spend it, they spend it, it doesn't matter. But yet they campaign on what is full responsibility. And so you and I need to know that if we're going to teach the Word of God for our children, if we're going to take them to a place where the Word of God is taught, we have to show them that there is power in God's Word. Some of the greatest moments that you will ever have in your children's life is when they see you have to take one on the chin. Someone cheats you in business and you say, the Lord will take care of it. When someone hurts you or wrongs you or cuts you off in traffic and you say, Lord bless them. Lucas went to Evansville with Burrow. I don't know where we went yesterday. We went to St. Louis. And I spend so much time alone in my car that I talk to myself pretty much constantly. All right? Someone passes me. Well, you have a nice day. I don't know where you're going, but have a nice day. Or if I come up on a truck that I can't see the side, I'll be like, oh, I bet it's a cake truck. Or I bet it's a, you know, I'm just keeping my mind occupied. 
Well, Luke has got to listen to that conversation with me and every car that passes by and, and every other, the whole time. But yet, you will never know how much your children will learn about your faith until they see you at rock bottom and how you trust him. When you get that diagnosis of cancer, who do you run to? When, when you get betrayed by someone that you never thought you would, in those moments, explaining the word of God, living out the word of God, that's where the power's at. Not when everything's good, not when everything's right, but yet when it costs you something. When it really has to, the potential to shatter your life or to change things at home, in those moments, I believe are some of the most teachable for us as individuals, but also for our children. <coughs> Thoughts, questions. The Holy Spirit is already going back to heaven at this point. Well, I do not believe he leaves completely because he is required for people to be saved. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts. The Holy Spirit is the one that works. So I believe his restraining is done. He's not restraining the world from sin. But I believe that you can't separate the Holy Spirit's work in salvation during the tribulation period. So is he doing his work from I believe he is, he is, the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is gone, but he is still at work in the hearts and lives of people. So. Yes? Revelation chapter 7 backs you up on that. Yeah. So there'll be multitudes saved during the tribulation. Yeah. But they'll die for the salvation. But if you read it, in, I think it's, uh, we just had it, didn't we, a couple weeks ago about about the Holy Spirit's restraining work will be over during this time. And I can't remember what, even what chapter it is off the top of my head. My brain's not working. Where is it at? Second Thessalonians 4? Or? No, You have to speak up. I'm dead. Revelations 4. All right, where is it at? Also said that. Huh? Okay. Well, ultimately, we have to remember that the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He's omnipresent. As he, he's omnipotent. So he's all places. He is all powerful. And he is all knowing. So sometimes you will see the Spirit, like there in Revelation 4. Um, where is that? Just read it. Um, you'll see it. Um, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne set in heaven. Right? So the Spirit was at work, but yet the Spirit was revealing things. So I think we have to be very careful to say, well, the Holy Spirit can't be on the earth because He's all places, all powerful, all knowing, just like the Father and the Son. So, if that makes any sense. All right, two quick things and I'll be done. Get you out of here early tonight. It says there about this great earthquake. And it says, <clears throat> verse 13, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. Now I want you to flip back over on the back. The word that is used here, and it's there, but I'm not going to pronounce it for you. It means the names of men. And so it gives this idea of 7,000 specific people. And you say, well, what does that matter? Well, there are two thoughts on it. Some people believe these are the 7,000 most wicked people in Jerusalem at that time. But I believe it is the 7,000 people who make up the Antichrist's evil world government. Because it says 7,000 men of names. These were men of influence. These were people who were specific. And, it, and the original language gives us this idea of pointing to a group of people specifically. And so who would that be? Who could that be? And so really when you think about the Lord dealing with his enemies, starting to deal with those who have abandoned the truth, it makes sense that it would affect those who oppose him the most. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it literally means the names of men.
trying to get specific about a group of people, a group of individuals. And so I just find that very interesting that God's people are saved at this moment. These two people are taken to heaven, but yet the wicked who probably were after them or persecuting them or were leading the charge against them, the Lord takes out in just a moment. And then this is the last one, and you can ask questions or throw cake or whatever you want to do. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, if you remember a few chapters back, it talks about, and I'll read you what MacArthur says because it explains it very well. And the rest, because that could mean is that all the people on the earth? Is that all the people in Jerusalem? Is it all the Jewish people? And the rest, in verse 13, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Gave glory to the God of heaven. What does that mean? It is hard to be absolutely dogmatic, but the best approach is to see it, I believe, as the last of the Jews who are living, coming to faith in their Messiah. I believe it is an appropriate point for them finally to fulfill Zechariah. To look on him who they have pierced and mourned for him as an only son. And for a fountain of blessing and salvation to be un opened unto Israel. There it is in Jerusalem. And certainly the dominant population of Jerusalem is Jewish. It is an appropriate way, I believe, at the end of verse 13 to describe Israel's salvation. I mean, the rest of the world, back in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, don't repent when the sixth trumpet comes. They're beyond it. They are hard. But here, those who were terrified gave glory to the God of heaven. The others refused to do that. They refused to glorify God, and they blasphemed God. I think the Jews in that moment do what the Gentiles have been asked to do through the whole period. In Revelation 14, 7, he said with a loud voice to all the tribes and tongues and nations, fear God and give him glory. Fear God and give him glory. I think that it is tantamount to believing, to saving response. Fear God and give him glory. Chapter 16, verse 9, but the men were scorched with fierce heat. They blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and did not repent so as to give him glory. Do you see it? So giving in glory was responding with fear and repentance. I believe then at the end of verse 13 when it says they gave glory to the God of heaven, that was a saving response. They were fearing God, worshiping the true God, repenting of their sins, because that is how glory is given to him. And those references in chapter 14, verse 7, and 16, verse 9, giving glory to God is an appropriate response. They had heard the preaching of these men for a long time. They had heard the preaching of the 144,000. The gospel was available to them. Finally, in that moment, the remaining remnant of Israel is described as believing. And so um, that seems like that is really a, a good interpretation when you look at the other parts of the scripture if you want to flip over to Romans chapter 11 and we'll be done I know we've touched in this chapter a little bit over the weeks Romans chapter 11 you can go back to chapter 10 and read the chapters before talking about Israel needs the gospel all right. It talks about the fact that Israel rejected the gospel, the Jewish people. And then in chapter 11, it talks about, in verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars, and I am alone left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. 
And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So it talks about Israel's rejection. But don't miss why. Don't miss why they rejected. Because in verse 11, I say then, have they not stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? But don't miss this because he goes on and he talks about branches and natural branches and spiritual branches. And he says in verse 19, you will say that branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. He says, don't be prideful and arrogant and look at the Jewish people that it's all about you. It's all about your faith. It's all about what God's done in you. He says, no, no, no. Don't let pride sneak into your heart because he goes on and says, therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Who is he talking about? Israel. They were cut for a season so the Gentiles could have access to the gospel. But he says, God can bring them back. And you say, well, who is he talking about then? Glad that you asked. Look what it says in verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. You need to know. And why does this matter? Because at this time, the Jewish people were persecuting them. They were the ones turning them into the Romans. They were the ones that were calling them a, a false religion, the, the, the blasphemers, those who had, had, had disobeyed God. There was a hatred towards the Jewish people. You could see the writings of the New Testament writers, the way they viewed the Jews and the way that they had Judaism had handled things. But don't be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. I read that and have to tell myself, Jake, you don't know near as much as you think you do. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Now, some people say this is spiritual Israel. Some people say it is physical, natural Israel. I believe it is natural Israel. I believe it is the Jewish people who have abandoned God, which this whole chapter talks about. And then right up until Revelation chapter 11, when God brings them back through the Messiah, through a personal relationship with Jesus, then they are saved. And all of the Old Testament promises that they had rejected, that they had ran from, God fulfills in this one moment when they give glory and honor to God. And so you see every promise God has ever made to the Jewish people. Being fulfilled. Now, some of them will go on to be fulfilled in the chapters to come, but this cycle of being God's people, abandoning God, being God's people after He brings them back, they were always His people, and He is working in them. And so, that's how I believe this section of the scripture ends with a beautiful picture of God fulfilling His promises to the Jewish people. And so, questions? I believe it's television or internet. The internet. So this, this uh, saving of Jews will apply to Jews worldwide, not just the people right there in Jerusalem. 
Well, I think there's some, I think you have to look at that if it says that all of Israel shall be saved. I, I think they still have to believe, but I believe it's, I don't know. People, Jewish people living here, whatever's left of America at that time. There are actually more Jews living in America today than there are Jews living in, um, around the world. Yeah. So this prophecy applies to the whole world because they're going to witness that to the, the, the Jewish people around the globe. Through the media, they're going to see this also. Yeah, I think you'll see, though, a great returning of the Jewish people during that first three and a half year period of the tribulation where you see the, the religious uh, Old Testament worship brought back and, and all of that. I think you'll see a great migration right. of Jews back to Israel. But they will all no, no. <laughs> well, if you've read ahead, and I hope that you have, I hope that you have, uh, we're getting ready to start the seventh trumpet, which then will unfold the bold judgments. But before we see the bold judgments, and this is where almost anyone who's ever studied the book of Revelation starts to get confused because they're like, wait a second, if we're at the end of this, why are we learning about the woman and the child and the dragon? Well, why are we seeing about that Satan was thrown out of heaven? And so it gives us a snapshot. It gives us like a break where it explains the things that have been happening. So you don't view it as, okay, we just get in chapter 11. Now these things are going on. No, it's almost like it's looking back to explain the spiritual side of why things are going on. Just like we saw in the early chapters when you would see it talking about the throne room of heaven and then what was going on on earth. What was going on in the throne room of heaven and then what was going on in earth. And so uh, in my own personal Bible study, this is where I've always got confused because I'm like, wait a second. So the witnesses are gone and now they're fleeing to the desert. So anyway, I hope that we can look at that very slowly. And as always, if you listen to me and think I don't understand it, you can always listen to David Jeremiah, and he will explain it better. So, um, praise report.